Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. In this episode of Scores and Pours, Jill and I talk about the wine and music that we're mildly embarrassed to love. It's all about guilty pleasures. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Good morning, I'm Luis. How's it going? It's going so great after take 64. Yeah, sometimes we have some trouble getting started. <laughs> and we did for this one. <laughs> this episode, we were just listening to the beginning. I know that you're just getting to the beginning, listener. But, yeah. And we talked about eye rollers for about six minutes. Yeah, that's and not what we're supposed to talk about in this episode. And eye rollers is a completely different episode. Yeah, so that's where we start. <laughs> we start with eye rollers an eye roller that Jill was mentioning, and it just kind of organically goes into the episode, and that's how that went down. So hence, uh, welcome to this episode that is Guilty Pleasures. I thought of one today that was... Did you? Yeah, but, I mean, you don't have to do it. It can be my... It's not even really my classical piece, because I, I don't think it sucks. <laughs> but Vivaldi's Allegro of his symphony number... Concerto number... Um, that one that, that's like a... Sing one. Sing a, f- a famous Vivaldi. Uh... Please sing to me Vivaldi's. Oh, there's the four seasons, and the, there's four times three. What's four times three? Twelve movements of those. Uh, and they go, uh, meow, 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 meow. Yeah, meow, that meow, one. Meow, meow, that meow, one. Meow, meow. Yeah, that's a really, like, that's that's the one. That's so annoying. <laughs> it's so it's so annoying. Yet it's like there's Vivaldi. something pretty about it. If I hadn't heard it ten billion times, maybe I would. Yeah, Vivaldi. and like on commercials for the USPS, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then maybe I would like it more. Uh, there's so much um, repetition in Vivaldi in a different way than there's repetition in other Baroque music. Because like Baroque music was known like one of the trademarks of Baroque music is a technique called sequencing, and you hear it all the time, all the time in all of them, just in very different ways. Like Bach does it all the time. And it's basically taking a phrase and just repeating it either, well, usually down a step or up a step, or, you know, more than a couple of times. So, you know, or whatever, you know, that's like an oversimplified example. Yeah. 
Vivaldi, Vivaldi's version of that can get a little, gets a little old for me too. There's some Vivaldi that I really do love. hear him a mile away you're like up oh, Vivaldi and is it kind of is some of it a little bit simpleton when I think of not like you or I could write it Listen, right but when yeah. we're comparing it to I mean we shouldn't compare the, right there are okay Vivaldi people way to know like actual shit about Vivaldi and I just know a little tiny bit of shit about Vivaldi like first of all he had red hair he was known as the red priest um, and I think it was curly and wavy, uh, and he was Italian, you know, Vivaldi. Hot. And, <laughs> and, uh, uh, I'm fairly certain that for quite a long time he taught at a music school, maybe for girls, which is what Holst did in the 20th century, but, um, but Vivaldi, I believe, taught at a school for girls, and so... I think some of his music was probably for the more advanced students. I, th- this could all be just like, just pulling, you know, I have no idea. That's just what I seem to recollect from talking about Vivaldi in my past. Okay. But I'll, I'd have to look for sure. But I've never been, you know, aside from we've talked in a previous episode about how like one of my favorite cassettes when I was a kid had the four seasons on yep. it. And that was a huge part of getting me to love classical music. But, you know, but then you listen to more classical music and perhaps your tastes change and mine did. And so I just, you know, never really went back to too much Vivaldi. Which brings us, I think, to a great intro, Mm -hmm. Guilty Pleasures, because I feel like Guilty Pleasures could be something that we once, in our respective fields, we once liked and it got us into our respective fields. And Mm -hmm. now... They're kind of considered maybe too simple to to like as a as more of a connoisseur slash expert mm-hmm. slash whatever you want to call us. Mm-hmm. Then you know on the flip side, there's something like the Backstreet Boys, which I have a friend who that's her guilty pleasure. And hey, whatever, <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't judge. But the wine I brought today could be considered that. Where you know, do I want to admit that I like it once in a blue moon, once a year? I want a wine like this, and mm-hmm. I consider that a guilty pleasure. Yeah. And so your your guilty pleasure, I feel like, could be one of those two things. Like something mm-hmm. you kind of don't want to admit that you like, but you do once in a while. Tell me why it ain't nothing but a Something that you that started you on a path, and now it would be kind of a maybe you'd be guilty as charged if you still, you know, listen to that same cassette every over over other over day. Yeah. yeah, or like put it even in really your top ten or something. You know, exactly. It, it can still be on the list.
I brought a wine today that I immediately think of in my profession. There are certain things that are kind of cool to like. Okay. There are certain things that are not cool to like. And it depends on in what camp you float, right? Are sure. you in a are you in a classic camp of a lot of, you know, pin sommeliers? Are you in the indie hipster realm of things? And either way you slice it, most of that both of those camps would overlap and probably tell you that excessively oaked big red wines are not cool to like. <laughs> they sell them. They sell $1,000 versions in their restaurants every night, and they know who to sell those to and how to sell those to, but do they drink them and buy them? They mm -hmm. usually don't. <laughs> um, I would say that's fairly safe to say when I'm talking about over-oaked, over-extracted high alcohol. Mm -hmm. Not really cool to like anymore. There was a time where that was vogue-ish. Okay. And by over-oaked, you mean it sat in the barrels for long, ever, well, forever, or what? not necessarily. That could be the case, but normally it's like... If you think of brand new oak oh, okay. that's been ultra charred, and let's just say American oak because it's more porous, you're just you're asking if you were to put water in that and then siphon it out after however many months or years, that would taste like a tea of oak. Okay. So yeah. your wine that your grapes cost how many thousands of dollars, and you wanna you wanna talk about it as an element of terroir, right, in your bottle. Why would you do that? Why would you go mm -hmm. put it in oak that's ultra-charred, et cetera? So mm -hmm. the wine that I brought today is not necessarily over-oaked or over-extracted or too high in alcohol, but it it does, it flirts with that a little bit in a okay. way that if I were to serve this to all my cool, hip, fun, Psalm friends and be like, this is my favorite wine ever, they would be like, <laughs> Really? Chill. <laughs> and they would they would laugh and have a couple jokes and then they'd probably drink a glass and go, wow, it is really good, but it would be something that we would never I would never drink this often. Yeah. And not because of what anybody thinks, just because it really doesn't call, doesn't beckon to me, it doesn't like tug at my heartstrings. Yeah. But a guilty pleasure is something that once in a blue moon, mm -hmm. you're like, gosh, I'm really in the mood for that, and I want no one to know. Exactly. So that's what this is. Yes. So do you want to taste a... Yes. Um, this is from California. It's a wine my friend makes. I, I won't mention her or him because I don't want them to know that their wine is a, a guilty pleasure it is, but I'm not drinking it every day. Um, it's a Grenache-based wine um, out of Central California, and the vines are quite old, so that adds to its intensity. Um, it spends a bit of time in oak, as you can smell that like mm -hmm. vanilla, cedar, sandalwood kind of thing um, that deters a little bit from grapes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like like the bass drum when we were listening to Omar yes. Portuondo a couple days ago. Emily and I went to a great concert and... Mm -hmm. We just couldn't help but notice, man, turn down the bass producer, mm -hmm. right? Well, know. yeah, the sound guy. Or the sound As guy. Sam said, you can't mix a jazz band like you mix a rock band. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And that's said. exactly what I said in my comments when I filled out my survey for how I enjoyed the show. I'm like, it was oh. awesome, but talk to your sound guy. <laughs> so when I taste this, I'm like, hey, dear friend in life, mm -hmm. just tone down the oak a little. Maybe yeah. use a, maybe use 50% less oak. Be, wow. be, it would be I would want to drink it. 
more. So but, would that mean they would put it in different barrels then, like not as new oak barrels or maybe a different, like a different... Uh, I'm pumping my fist. She is, like a different right uh, oak from like Europe or some shit? Yeah, like, they, could, they could use European barrels. They could use... Which aren't as strong as American oak. Not in as terms porous. Of, right, okay. Yep, they could use older oak for sure because old oak has already been seasoned by many years, and they say that after three years, the influence of oak tends to wean, but I don't know, I can taste a nine-year-old oak barrel, and it tastes, you can tell it's there. Sure. But um, Or 50% of this could be in concrete, and 50% could be in oak. Oh, and then you, you mix know? them. And then you blend them, mm-hmm. and then you've got blend a wine them. that's, you Sorry. know, you can mix. Mix is <laughs> blend. Chin chin to score and pours. Scores and pours. Did I just say score and pours? You did. And you said pours and pours. I didn't say either. Oh, did I, I? I said pours and pours. Oh, no. So let's just try that again. <laughs> to scores and pours. Scores and pours. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even had any of this yet. So you taste how extracted, like it, and how... And describe that. Like... Extracted. Like think of the difference between whole milk and skim milk. Mm-hmm. Whole milk is thicker. Well, yeah. It, the extraction, like it's extracted a lot from the skins it's oh, got okay. a lot of like like glycerol um which can come in very like that could be added it's not here okay. but glycerol is that feeling of like glycerin right of like a feeling of almost sugar thickness mm-hmm. that's not it, even though the wine's not sweet right you know? yeah and then you notice on the tip of the tongue mm-hmm. that there is almost the faintest amount of sugar this has such high alcohol that it produced the the yeasts are feeding right they're they're fermenting the mm-hmm. the grape juice and they there gets to be a point where there's too much sugar if a uh, sugars are feeding right and mm-hmm. if there's an adequate amount of sugars it's sort of like if you ate a nice balanced breakfast waited a couple hours and then went and ran you'd be mm-hmm. able to run and get home and you're fine mm-hmm. That think of that as like yeast fermenting a dry wine, dry, or fermenting a fermenting grape juice dry, right? Yes. And if you eat, if you like fill up on like a huge bre- huge breakfast, and then two hours later you go try to run, you're gonna you're gonna start to run, and you're gonna get halfway through your run, and you're gonna have a cramp, and you're gonna you know just maybe feel like you want to get sick or something. And so think of that if you've got sugar, you've got grape juice, and yeast are chugging right along. If there's too much sugar, mm-hmm. if there's those grapes have been on the vine too long, there's going to be a point to where either the sugars will win that battle and the yeast will get tired and won't ferment the wine dry okay. if it's an indigenous yeast fermented wine or there's it produces too high of alcohol so the yeasts won't thrive anymore and they'll kind of fizzle out. Oh. So there's a reason why really full-bodied wines mm-hmm. end up having a hint of residual sugar, but which is why so many people are like, I want a big full-bodied red. Because <laughs> then it's like they want, they what they really want to Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. but they want to drink red wine. Mm-hmm. And this is healthier for them, of course, but it also, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. is left with that very pleasing amount of residual sugar. So not my jam, but man, twice a year. If I'm like ordering, a, you know, Domino's, Domino's pizza. pizza. <laughs> if I had that around, I'd be like, 
<laughs> so what is your That's awesome. what uh, what are I can I can go on with guilty pleasures and I will but what what is one of your classical guilty pleasures? Yeah. <clears throat> well, that would be a truly awesome piece called Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. Okay. And that is a shockingly common way for people to get into classical music. And so when you fall in love with it and you listen to it 8,000 times when you're 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20. Why why is it like, so why is it so common for people to It's super accessible piece. It's very tonal for the most part. When you say tonal, what does that mean? Uh consonant all the harmonies sound pretty together. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and there's only a couple of spots where he gets a little ee. Um, but uh, also it ends with this giant version of Simple Gifts. Tis a gift to be simple. Tis a gift to be free. You know that tune, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which kind of makes me like that's one of those folk songs where I'm just like, I've heard that so many times. But it's such a beautiful version of it. I mean, and he does it so remarkably well um, that I still will listen to this piece, even though, and I won't even really be happy with myself for doing it sometimes, especially when I get to the (laughs) end, you know, because I'm just like, God, why did I just listen to that again? But it's because it's, it's good. It's really great. And there's a lot of beautiful parts in it, but um, uh, it just happens to be a lot of Copeland's music. Rewind. A lot of Copeland's popular music uh, is very accessible and um, just there's not a lot to not like about it. Are you speaking from a, you know, an American in classical music? Because I wonder, does the classical community that is maybe elementary based, you know, they they love all classical music, but mm-hmm. what they how they either get into it or if they just are very maybe elementary is a bad word, amateur mm-hmm. amateur listeners, mm-hmm. is that do you think that that's worldwide or is that something that is? You know, oh, like do people in Germany like fall in love with the classical music because of Aaron Copeland? That's what I mean. Yeah, as Hitler rolls in his grave. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) Okay, and I I ask because like Appalachian Spring is pronounceable, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, a lot of reasons why Americans fall in love with certain wines is because mm-hmm. they can pronounce them, especially French wines, mm-hmm. when they love Volnay and they think Volnay is the best Burgundy on planet Earth. Yeah. It's because Volnay looks like how it's pronounced. Yeah, but Appalachian like, doesn't. Well, I mean, or Appalachian. <laughs> I mean, they can mispronounce it, but at least they're kind of close. Whereas yep. like yeah. Savigny Le Bon looks like Savigny Les Beaune, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> what is that? Is it a, an it's American I, amateur it thing? It probably is in a lot of ways because so so much 
uh, film music um, and music and media was influenced by that sound to depict, you know, the American frontier or something like that. And so we grew up seeing shit like that on TV. that Americans would know many more sections than they give themselves credit for, like just having been in this video or that commercial or this TV show, they don't know who it is who wrote it. They don't know what symphony is playing it, nor do they know. Right. I would say that more about two of his other pieces before I would say it about this one. Okay. I would say that about Fanfare for the Common Man. Which is wonderful, um, and they would definitely say that about uh, the movement from rodeo, which we were talking about earlier. Yeah, because somehow culture decided to pronounce it rodeo, even though that's not correct. It's rodeo. Uh, it's funny when we want to put a when we think something is of like a higher echelon mm. or, or more cultural, we throw in. So, for example, there's a beer that's spiked with raspberries that's made in Belgium and mm-hmm. in France to some extent. And we call it frambois here. Yeah. We just make it sound French. <laughs> but it's actually, it's O-I-S-E and it's pronounced framboise. <laughs> so it's funny that it's like. <laughs> that's rodeo and rodeo. Exactly. Okay. It's the okay. exact same thing. Okay. <laughs> and. Um, that's the one that, you know, in the 90s, I think, was the beef campaign. Remember that? Beef, it's what's for dinner. That was the music that played. So people our age especially are going to know that Copeland piece. But I would say... The end of Appalachian Spring is super recognizable because of the folk song, right? It's a shaker melody, old American shaker hymn, uh, Simple Gifts. So, uh, you know, people know that tune. They know that tune for sure. They just might, may or may not have heard it from this piece, you know? I mean, they could have heard it at school or church as a kid or wherever, you know? And to parallel the two, because I told you why this is my guilty pleasure. Oh, yeah. And an interesting thing you mentioned, you said, yeah, well, Appalachian Spring is a very easy way for people to get into classical music or something to mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. to that accord. It is, yeah. And same thing with these kind of 
wines, right? Mm-hmm. Most people don't get into wine. And I mean, maybe nowadays with, you know, hipster Brooklyn, stuff like that and social media. But mm-hmm. back when I started out in wine, you didn't start out drinking, you know, floor living on the top of a white wine that wasn't topped up called Chateau Chalon. You didn't start liking a wine that tasted like nuts and curry. Sure. You didn't start liking orange wine or Georgian wine. You started liking mm-hmm. big cabs, yeah. big Merlots. And then just like when you really get into, you know, you start cooking and you love to make sauces and you love to make Bernays and you make Hollandaise and you make Beurre Blanc and all the sauces and everything has sauces. And then you gain 40 pounds, you you aren't digesting, you know, you're not, you're just not functioning on all cylinders because you're just saucing. You're just saucing. All the time. <laughs> it, it, you start to get sick of that, right? And you, your body starts to crave lighter flavors, vinaigrettes, let's say, just to keep it on the sauce front. Sure. And that's exactly how... This is a great way, the wine we're drinking today, mm-hmm. California red that's done in a little, little, just a touch too much new oak. And I'm not saying that for me. I'm just saying, yeah. like, if I were to judge this in a competition, doesn't matter what I think. Personally, for what mm-hmm. I like, it is does have a little too much oak. It is a little unbalanced, a little bitter on the finish. Maybe the press yeah. run was a little bit too much. Um you know, bitterness also can come from some some green tannins in the, in wood. So there are many reasons why that could be that way. But um, very easy wine, besides its price point, of how people could get into wine. And then you see, as you know, you realize like, wow, Appalachian Spring is so well done and it's so beautiful. Or this Vivaldi piece is so mm-hmm. gorgeous that it, you know, it does become sort of easy. And mm-hmm. the more you're going to listen to it, the more you just don't want to sit down and listen to Easy. The same way, you know, I don't want to sit down to a glass of wine and drink Easy. I was going to suggest that you tell me about another guilty oh. pleasure of yours, but I'm happy to, because we're kind of tit for tatting, I'm happy to go back and tell you about another one. Oh, let's hear another one. It's really ridiculous. Is it music or wine? It's well, it's, or a it's drink. Wine. It's for sure wine. Okay. I mean, it's actually for sure a drink. <laughs> You're like I'm staying on my side of the line. I will today. It's wine. I, I will today. <laughs> um, so right now there's a fad in beer that I am, you know, I'm not too on board with. However, once in a while, I want one, um, and I'm not on board with it because it really doesn't showcase more than a trend. Um, and most brewers, if you were to ask them, what's your favorite beer to make or what's your mm-hmm. favorite beer to drink after a shift, they're not going to say a hazy IPA. They're probably going to say a lager of some sort or something really crisp or maybe a, a session ale or something. And and man, but once in a while, a hazy I- because hazy IPAs are like they taste like a health drink, and a beer a IPA like blended. You know, they're opaque. What makes an IPA a hazy IPA? So there are certain things that the brewers they're a, usually they're not filtering it, okay, um, or they're lightly filtering it. But there are things that can be added to enhance that too, um, depending on how the brewer 
wants that to come to fruition. So, uh, but a hazy IPA is basically an unfiltered, like a cloudy IPA. Okay. And they taste like orange juice meets mango juice meets lemon juice meets all the juices. Why? With kombucha and beer. Well, because it's just thick and it's so fruity and oh. so tropical and citrusy. It's like the Mai Tai yeah. of beers. And I really, when I taste them- set those on fire too? I wish they would be- um, Ooh, experiment. <laughs> Episode 342. <laughs> set a bunch of hazy IPAs on fire. gets on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Show about fire in classical music and wine. But no- Plenty so, of pieces about it. Um, yeah, so I, I just, I feel like that's a beer that I, you know, you, nobody in the beer business that knows a ton about beer mm-hmm. is going to be like, that's all I drink, man, or cla- or hazy, hazy IPAs. Yeah. But once in a while, I want one. I don't know. Yeah. I found myself like once, a couple times this last year being like, oh, I'm really kind of craving one of those. But do I, is it my go-to or do I think they're mm-hmm. remotely intrinsic? Yeah, no, they're, that's purely trend. That's mm-hmm. trend beer talking. Wow. So you think 20 years from now, will there be very many hazy IPAs around? God, no. Really? No. I mean, people might, and I couldn't even predict, but I would say no. It's Sour beers are a big thing now, like kettle sours, not too c- complex sour beers. Okay. And hazy IPAs and beers that are like imperial stouts that taste like banana bread kind of things because yeah. you don't need to be an expert to, to drink those beers, to like right. talk about the intricacies of those beers because right. they're very available, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe much like Appalachian Spring. You can try to dissect if you want, but there's going to get to be a point where it gets sort of hard to knife and fork it. Mm. And um, with a beer I tasted the other day, it was a banana bread imperial stout aged in bourbon barrels. And it was like, yeah, it was 10 plus percent alcohol. And do I think it's interesting to have an ounce? Sure, it's yeah. interesting to taste. Why is that a thing? Like how, yeah. and I, you know, you don't really have to do a whole lot of research to be able to talk about that beer, mm-hmm. you know, whereas if you're going to start talking about the intricacies of a Baltic porter and what makes a Baltic porter and why and when did it start and the history, you have to like, you have to do some, yeah. dedicate some time. Yep. Banana bread imperial stouts, you just really don't, right. you know, <laughs> we can keep that or not keep that, but yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. We should have a taste of this wine, and I'll talk about another guilty pleasure that I spent quite a bit of time listening to in high school. Please, too. Yeah. This next piece is from uh, an opera. It's an aria, very famous opera aria, although there are lots of those. But this one is Nessun Dorma, and it's from a Puccini opera called Turandot. And uh, I don't really know very much about that opera, uh, we were having a little offline discussion about how what I like about opera, what I don't like about opera. I really like going to the opera. I think that's a very fun experience. And I also, through opera, gained a very important appreciation for Mozart through his opera. So opera is great. Oh, 
Nesun Dorma is just like, so, you know, it's like if you have a request show, people call and request this all the time. So it the thing the thing about Nesun Dorma is to me and this goes with a, a a lot of opera in general like if you don't like that person's voice it's over you know what i mean mm-hmm. so so for me i really 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 just want to hear luciano pavarotti sing nesun dorma person I want to hear sing Nesun Dorma is Aretha fucking Franklin. She did that at the Grammy Awards in the 90s, and I saw it. I watched it live because Luciano was sick at the last minute because he was getting old. He had a lot of health problems at the end because he was quite overweight and, you know, he'd been singing for 60 years or some shit. So he called off at the last minute, and they're like, hey, Aretha, want to sing some Puccini? And she went up on that stage, and every single time, goosebumpy right now thinking of it, every time I've ever seen it, I cry. Like, it's just that moving how she does that, that aria. So those are the two people I want to hear do it. Uh, and they're both gone now. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, it's beautiful. It so has, Lizzo, you're going to get the phone Lizzo, call exactly. at some point. Shit. Just saying. Oh my God, Lizzo would just saying. kill it. You could like mix, Lizzo, Lizzo mix, mix a little song and mix a little flute, like where mm-hmm. you want. Just like yeah. do that. Little, just little do that. flute, Nasun Lizzo. Hashtag Lizzo beating. Yes. Telling you. <laughs> so is it something you obviously listen to as a as a young lass? So Quite then often. You would kind of graduate on to so many more things, right? Yeah. So that's one definition we've sort of we've yeah, come up with yeah but would anybody say wow emily you know i mean that piece is really obviously brilliant but that's sort of like for beginners in classical and opera for sure okay yeah so, i mean there's well i mean there's a reason it's so popular it is its own kind of masterpiece but there's just so much more mm-hmm. there's so much more out there and that's what i'm saying like, okay because that, you know, that that i agree because this yeah. wine here is a masterpiece in and of itself, in a restaurant, this is, you know, almost a $200 wine. Jesus. And, you know, we I could talk about why it is worth that and maybe shyly why it's not. But at the same time, it is its own masterpiece. And I yeah. think if I were to put this in front of XYZ sommelier, they'd say, yeah, I mean, I could sell the pants off that at 200 bucks, mm-hmm. no problem. Mm-hmm. And so... For the bottle, not for a glass. For the bottle, correct. Okay, yeah. I know, I have served you a couple spendy... Spendy ones, it's true. Um, so 
So that that piece is categorically a masterpiece. Yes. Okay. That's why this guilty pleasures thing is so hard because truly, like, for me, I mean, I'd be talking about Rihanna right now if we were actually talking about <laughs> legit guilty pleasures. But that is truly you know a, guilt, I mean? that is a guilty pleasure. Yeah. Or, but, I mean, most yeah. most of society would not agree with you. Because no, they'd be like, not. they love Rihanna. So no, they'd be I like, know. that's not a guilty pleasure. Right. I feel like, you know, maybe... I, I mentioned Backstreet Boys, no harm, hashtag, semi-heart, Backstreet Boys, that's or whatever, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Just like putting that that out there. But I feel like those are guilty pleasures, perfect yeah. examples. And in wine, I think that there are plenty of those. In beer, there are plenty of those. Like some people will talk about Guinness. Guinness, I think, is like tried and true. It's obviously been a very similar recipe for a long time, not centuries, but for quite a long time. And if you're in the beer world and you're like, man, I'm really fancying a Guinness, people are going to be like, really? It's mass produced. Now it's produced all over the world. It's not even mm-hmm. just just made at St. James Gate anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are two times a year that I really want a Guinness, and it doesn't matter. And yeah. that's a guilty pleasure, I mm-hmm. think. So, mm-hmm. um, You drink I, hams from time to time, too. You'll have a hams, won't you? No, if I'm, I thought you said that the other day. That's why. Yeah, I, bring I mean, it up. I, I would, I would drink a hams if it were really hot. I'd probably drink half a hams. Okay, and then it wouldn't be cold enough on a ninety-five yeah. degree day, and yeah. then I would just pour it to the bluegills. Yeah, and be like, <laughs> you need this more than me. Um, but you know, I, I drink a half a hams. But that's a great, yeah, rendition. I think of a of mm-hmm. a guilty pleasure mm-hmm. or example. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there are a lot of examples in classical of, you know, tunes that aren't really known as masterpieces. For instance, uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, not considered a masterpiece in terms of like tonal construction or form or, but people you love know, it. but people love it. And I, I even love it, especially if you get some real cannons out there, yo, fire that shit off on 4th <laughs> of July or something, you know, that's fun. That's some fun stuff. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, <laughs> oh, good. Oh my God. But uh, again, you know, um, you know, if like, if I at this point in my life and career uh, said to someone with like total conviction that 1812 Overture was my favorite piece of classical music, that's what they would look like. They would look like. <laughs> I just gave just a raised got, eyebrow and yeah, was like, what? Like, what? Yeah. They, they, they would not, that wouldn't resonate well. Be like, oh. So you haven't listened to classical music then, would be what that would be like. Yeah. So, so the the moral of of this rendition, this edition, yeah. yeah. So the moral <laughs> of this edition of scores and pours, yeah, is indulge your guilty pleasures. Do it, and just in, indulge your. Guilty pleasures, right? Yeah, I mean, just indulge your guilty pleasures. Just Copeland it up. Copeland all day. Big red wine. Sometimes, though, because if you do your guilty pleasures every day, then... Then they're not guilty they're pleasures. Not guilty then they're pleasures. just That's habits. just how you are. Yeah. So, you know, Copeland from time to time, Appalachian, spring. Big red wine. Big red wine. Hazy IPAs. Oaky, hazy IPAs, and a little bit of Luciano Pavarotti. Cheers to that. Cheers. To scores yeah. and pours. Scores and pours. See, I think that was fun. And that I love was how easy. you just shut that shit down.
Thank you for listening to episode 19 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we're at Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. 